Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Antoine Brut joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about the previous Umayyad Caliphate's hegemony in the Mediterranean basin in the 7th century. Dr. Brut specializes in early Islamic history and historiography. He's an associate professor at the University of Maryland, based in the U.S. He's author of the book, Between Memory and Power, The Syrian Space Under the Latter Umayyads and Early Abbasids. That was published by Brill in French, and in 2022, an English version is coming out. And he's co-editor of the book, Umayyad Legacies, Medieval Memories from Syria to Spain. And that was published by Brill as well. And Dr. Brute joins the show today from the state of Maryland in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Antoine. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Good to connect with you, Antoine. So to create an overview, and this question is not meant to circums- be circumscribed to specifically the 7th century, to, to create an overview to start the conversation, who were the Umayyads? Right. So um, the Umayyads are usually described as the first dynasty of Islam. And the um, agreed-upon chronology runs from 661 to 750, when they were toppled by the Abbasids. Um, Now, that's one way to look at them. Um, And that will be a a fine chronology if you're just looking at the so-called Umayyads of Syria or first Umayyad dynasty. How they uh, represented themselves, how the Umayyads represented themselves, um, would rather be a bit different. Um, first of all, they would consider Osman, one of the so-called Rashidun, or rightly guided caliphs, as the first of them, uh, because he is a, a, a cousin, a close relative of, of Muawiyah, that we're going to discuss next, that is usually regarded as the first Umayyad caliph. But in what remains of Umayyad discourses, they certainly considered Osman as the first of them, and in fact, as a key to their legitimacy and claims to the caliphate. That's partly because, of course, the concept of Rashidun, or rightly guided caliphs, for the first four successors to the Prophet Muhammad, was only invented at a later date. Um, So the starting point will be debated here, and we could probably consider starting as early as 644, when Osman became a caliph. The end point is just as problematic because whereas the agreed upon chronology ends in 750 with the so-called Abbasid revolution, the one Umayyad prince managed to escape and resurrect Umayyad power in Iberia across the Mediterranean and gave birth to what we normally call the second Umayyad dynasty or the Umayyads of Spain that would rule over Iberia uh, until the 11th century. So, and we do have some echoes in the um, Iberian sources of this kind of Umayyad long durée, starting with Osman, mid-7th century, and continuing all the way to the 11th century. So here we have multiple and competing Umayyad chronologies, if you will. And so, knowing that, what what is... Convention. So, is do is convention when Muawiyah comes into power, and what year is that? 
Right. So the, the, the 661 is is usually the agreed upon date here because that's the end of the of the first fitna of the first uh, civil war. Not a perfect translation of fitna, but uh, a conventional one. Uh, that's when Ali is assassinated and and Muawiyah, uh, uh, you know, is now free to take over uh, uh, the entire um, spaces inherited from the um, Islamic conquests. So 661 is a, is a conventional uh, starting date, but that again requires us to think with the later chronological construction of the Abbasid age uh, of the Rashidun uh, that you, you've discussed in another episode. Um, and, and that's because from the Umayyad perspective, there is absolutely no way Ali and Osman could be put in the same category and certainly not if we imagine this category as that of rightly guided caliphs because uh, a lot of the Umayyads would not acknowledge uh, Ali's legitimacy. Um, so, um, but be that as it may, yes, uh, the, the, the conventional wisdom is that Muawiyah was a very successful um, conqueror and then governor of Syria, that Syria became his power base, and that's where, um, thanks to uh, the support of the Syrian army, he was able to oppose Ali um, and to claim uh, revenge from the for the blood of, of Osman, who had been murdered in, in 656. Um, and so Muawiyah has a kind of a, you know, a platform to make his claim for, for the caliphate and eventually seize power uh, in the early 660s. Okay. And so acknowledging then, so that it's in, in, in the episode that um, what, what, what one of the points you made, Antoine, is that one of Muawiyah's family members was part of the Rashidun Caliphate period, correct? That, 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 that's yes, correct? That's, that's Osman. Of course, the, the Umayyad family itself had, had deeper roots in the Arabian Peninsula, and they, several of their ancestors um, were already very significant power brokers in pre-Islamic Mecca. The bottom line being that um, most Umayyad family members, Osman will be an exception because he converted or he, he joined the Prophet early on, but most others were what we call late Meccan converts. They uh, at first opposed the Prophet Muhammad, including on the battlefield in, in some cases. And, and Muawiyah is one of them. Muawiyah is only joining the Prophet late in the game, but quickly becoming an important player. Um, and he became a, a scribe to Muhammad in the very final years of Muhammad's life. Um, and after that, as we've mentioned, he, he will be a key player in the conquest and uh, administration of early Islamic Syria. Okay, so acknowledging that Osman was a family member of Muawiyah, we got some of that, some of those items out of the way so that they're acknowledged. And then we, we, we inside of an hour, need to have a, a constructive con conversation that's, that's colloquial. And I think we, we're going to have to make some decisions on whether you know we're we're going by convention, um, acknowledging things where it makes sense to acknowledge, etc. So are you fine then when we when we go to that next stage in the conversation when we're speaking about things like geography, demarcation, and stuff? Are you are you fine with starting at the year six sixty one? Sure. No, absolutely. We can totally do that. Yes. Okay. Great. Okay. I'll flag I'll flag moments or or, or questions that are particularly problematic. Um, but, but, you know, we don't have to go into the specifics every time. 
yes, that and that completely makes makes sense, and that that's part of um, unpacking this this topic as, as well more and more. Okay, so so when Muaya comes into power in six sixty one, which is convention conventionally when the Umayyad Caliphate begins, what geographic Oh, and I want to mention this as well because the Rashidun Caliphate period was was mentioned uh, a, a couple times in your responses, Antoine. And this is for everyone listening. Uh, an overview of the Rashidun Caliphate period was covered with Dr. Harry Munt. That was published on the show on June twenty eighth, twenty twenty one. So that it's flagged for everybody with a date there. So when the when the Umayyad Caliphate came into power using the the conventional date and the the initial caliph. What ge- geography would they have inherited at at this point in time? And and you know this, and the listeners know this. The catchment area of the show is the Mediterranean basin. So please please sh- share what's known about the total geography. But of course, we'll we'll focus the conversation more on the the Mediterranean basin today. Right. Uh, so the chronology of of Islamic expansion outside of the Arabian Peninsula um, is is a complex topic, but um, to keep it simple, since uh, the mid-630s, 634 will be a, a traditional date, um, we see expansion outside of the peninsula. And so when the Umayyads rose to power, well, many of them had been involved in the conquest, but when the caliphate, um, the Umayyad caliphate started in 661, then they're ruling over already substantial spaces ranging from modern-day Egypt and Libya in the West to modern-day um, Afghanistan and Central Asia to the East. Um, and they're already um, making forays into uh, uh, the Caucasus uh, in the North. Um, that thinking in terms of the landmass controlled by the Umayyads at first, and then they will be responsible for a lot more territorial expansion. The, the Umayyads were major World conquerors and would expand all the way to Iberia and modern-day France. If we if we think about um, the Mediterranean in the West, also so-called Islamic West, but also further expansion um, in the um, Indus Valley in in modern-day India and in Central Asia. And since your focus is the Mediterranean, we should also point out that the Umayyads were responsible for the construction, I guess, of the first. Uh, Muslim navy that will become a major power broker on on, on the Mediterranean, including um, several attempts to capture Constantinople and capturing several Mediterranean islands uh, along the way. Okay, I flagged maritime as an item to circle back to at some point in this conversation, Antoine. Um, how far how far north to to Clarify that as it pertains to the Mediterranean basin, would would uh, their territory have expanded to in the seventh century? Right. So um, it, it's hard to think in terms of definitive firm boundaries. Uh, we have to imagine rather frontier areas where um, th- that are still disputed against the Byzantines. So the simple answer, I suppose, is. Well, the Persians, the Sasanians, were were toppled and and vanished, and and, and so on the um, eastern side, um, east of the Euphrates, 
uh, the former power, the, the Persian Empire, uh, is gone. And um, it's now, um, you know, it's not that the Umayyads are not meeting uh, resistance here and there, especially in Central Asia, uh, where a lot of independent powers are resisting. But in the Mediterranean, of course, it's a different game because Byzantium was severely defeated. Byzantium has retreated um, and experienced substantial losses. Most importantly, the loss of Egypt, which was key to the Byzantine economy and to feed Constantinople. Um, and the Umayyads are making progress. But then again, depending on internal on the internal situation within the caliphate, and especially in the course of um, civil wars, the Byzantines could briefly regain the advantage. So if you think about um, um, Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, um, then you can see Umayyad progress, and then you can see some kind of a Byzantine counterattack, and, and this kind of back and forth, um, culminating with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, several attempts by the Umayyads to capture Constantinople. Um, that didn't happen, obviously, uh, but uh, uh, a couple of those um, maritime and land uh, sieges of the Byzantine capital were of, um, you know, had a, had a major impact uh, and were extremely important, not just in military terms, but also um, if you think about the Umayyad worldview, as again, as world conquerors, uh, Constantinople was a major objective. In Northern Africa in 661, how much of Northern Africa would have been within their land holdings? And then through the century that we're speaking about, so the period we're speaking about, so up to the end of 699 CE, how, how much expansion would have occurred or said, you know, said another way, how did that territory change in Northern Africa? Yes. Um, well, I think that the convenient date here is slightly later. You need, you need 711, which is the capture of Iberia. Um, and, and that's uh, when they cross uh, the, the, the uh, Gibraltar Strait. Um, but, you know, when the Umayyad rose to power, um, Egypt had been conquered already, very significant province. Actually, the, the governor of Egypt was uh, supporting Muawiyah in his um, fight against uh, Ali. Uh, and part of what is modern-day Libya was also um, already um, more or less under control. I mean, we, we could debate um, how, how much Umayyad control was being exercised here and there. Um, so the, the bulk of the expansion is further west, from modern-day Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and Iberia, including also uh, significant forays uh, north of the Pyrenees in, in what is modern-day France. And that, um, you know, again, the 7-Eleven is, is a convenient turning point with the uh, capture of Iberia at the end of the, at the, end of the Visigoths. You've mentioned in the past when we've chatted, An Antoine, that Damascus, you've used the term, was an administrative capital. So let's, let's, chat, let's chat about Damascus that falls within the catchment area of the Mediterranean basin. Um, can you speak about the relationship that the Umayyads in this period would have had to, a to, a, to the concept of a capital or capitals? And can you speak about the relationship and importance that Damascus was to them? Sure. So, well, clearly 
Syria, or we would say today in English, greater Syria. So the Levant, basically, uh, a much larger uh, area than modern day Syria. Um, greater Syria was the Umayyad heartland of power because that's where, as a conqueror and then as a governor, that's where Muawiyah had about two decades prior to his caliphate to firmly establish his power base, developed specific links with the local tribes and the local military. I mean, the, the army was largely organized along, uh, along tribal lines. Um, and so that was the, the, the power base of, of the early Umayyads, and that will remain for uh, true of the uh, Umayyad caliphs of Syria up to 750. Um, within Syria, Damascus is certainly extremely significant, but I like to refer to it as an administrative capital, not to give the impression of a completely, first, we, 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 we don't want to give the impression of a fully centralized power, even though they are centralization forces, centralization processes uh, already in the late seventh century. Um, but um, you have to imagine Umayyad princes and Umayyad caliphs uh, to be a lot on the move, practicing a form of itinerant kingship for many of them. Um, and, and we also need to factor in that other places were almost equally important. Um, I'm thinking especially about Jerusalem, um, where actually uh, Muawiyah was first acknowledged as a caliph. So it's very important that we uh, think about Umayyad Damascus, um, and, and there are many good reasons to do that, uh, but it's a bit, um, it's better to avoid reducing Umayyad Syria to, to Umayyad Damascus, right? It's, it's a much broader project that we need to think about at the scale of the entire Syrian province and indeed at the scale of the entire caliphate. The, the problem of dividing Umayyads of Syria and Umayyads of Spain, for instance, um, or you know, thinking about the Umayyads of Damascus versus the Abbasids of Baghdad is that we tend to reduce their uh, projects to one province or the other. And, and we need to you know, restore their kind of vision for the caliphate more, more, uh, more generally. Um, but then again, uh, that being said, there was, of course, a lot of autonomy on the ground. And so Umayyad governors in, in the other provinces had their share of um, freedom of movement and action, uh, um, even though the caliph would uh, send orders and directives from, from Syria. What do you want to say about the major geopolitical events that would have occurred in the Mediterranean basin in the period of time that we're speaking about today regarding the Umayyads? Well, if you think about the Mediterranean's Per se, I suppose um, the, the, the sieges of Constantinople I was referring to are obviously major uh, steps. Muawiyah is responsible for one of them, for one early attack uh, on Constantinople, even if one could argue, I suppose, that the most significant siege was the one in the early 8th century uh, in the late um, 710s, in 717, 718, uh, when um, Constantinople was really uh, significantly threatened, even though, again, um, the siege failed in the end. Um, but I suppose the, the most significant event of the, of the 7th century, rather, would be the Islamic expansion itself. That is an absolute game changer and, and radically transforming the map of late antiquity, uh, especially reuniting 
the former Persian and Roman slash Byzantine territory. And um, so that's, you know, if you just think in terms of territorial expansion, but of course it has many more implications at the cultural level, for instance, um, that, that should be uh, factored in. Moreover, if you just think about, um, you know, I guess the, the emergence and rise of Islam, not just as a religion, um, but but also as a religion, of course, is is equally uh, important here in the picture. And then if you think about the development of the caliphate itself, that is a, an Islamic state, um, if you will, um, we would also need to factor factor in some um, significant um, internal challenges, um, such as we already mentioned the first fitna, the first civil war, 656 to 661. And then we should also consider the, the second one starting in, in 680 and, and lasting for about 12 years that had a tremendous impact on the, on the Umayyad Caliphate. I mean, the, the Umayyads almost vanished from the scene, uh, but were eventually able to slowly recover and restore their authority over uh, the empire. Can you summarize? So in the period we're speaking about, there was two fitna civil wars. Yes. Were there? Okay. Can you can you summarize those two wars and also can you can you clarify what the term fitna means? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. So um, the standard translation of fitna in English, I guess, is often civil war, um, and it kind of does a decent job, you know, to to um, help us understand what we're talking about. But really, the term means a trial sent to the community of believers. Um, so it's a challenge for the community to overcome. Now, <clears throat> the difficulty here is what we think we know about the first two or three fitnas, the first three fitnas have something to do with the Umayyad, right? The, the first one is at the beginning of Umayyad power. The third one is at the end of Umayyad power in Syria. The second one is kind of in the middle. But what we think we know about those three fitnas is partly mediated by what medieval scholars wanted to remember after an even later one, after the fourth fitna in the early ninth century. And so the challenge is we can show that the term fitna was in use early on, but its exact early meaning in a seventh century context remains difficult to grasp. So we mostly have a sense of how Slightly later Muslims, um, slightly later generations of Muslim scholars from the ninth century onwards wanted to remember that concept, that notion. And in a way, it's difficult to talk about the first and the second fitna without considering the fourth fitna, because um, that has been well shown by someone like Taib al-Hibri, for instance, because the narratives of the fourth fitna deeply impacted the, the rewriting, if you will, of the previous ones. Now, that being said, the, the, the standard wisdom is that the first fitna, usually the, the one that is um, mostly known by, by people interested in the field, um, is this fitna that starts with the killing, the assassination of Osman in 656, and then crystallizes around the opposition between Muawiyah and Ali. Um, there are a couple of other episodes that we could think about, the famous Battle of the Camel, 656, between 
Meccans, so-called Muhajirun, those who made the Hijra, the immigration from Mecca to Medina in 622, uh, and, and Ali and the Medinese. Um, Ali is victorious, but the following year in what is modern-day Syria at the Battle of Sifin, 657, um, he is unable to defeat Muawiyah. It's, there's no winner at the Battle of Sifin. Um, and I mean, it's a, again, there is a lot of narrative elaboration about these battles that is difficult to uh, untangle. But at the end of the day, as the story goes, because there was no winner on the battlefield, both, uh, both sides agreed uh, to uh, arrange an arbitration. And that very notion of a human arbitration was refused by, by some Muslims. And so the reason why most people know a little something about the first fitna is because it is seen as the original split between proto-Sunnis, between proto-Shiites, so that will be proto-Sunnis, that will be Muawiyah, the Osmanis, the Umayyads, proto-Shiites, that will be Ali and his partisans, and the so-called Kharijites, uh, today, we mostly think, but perhaps in terms of Ibadis, uh, who refuse the very notion of an arbitration. So the first fitna is key to sectarian division in early Islam. Obviously, I'm not doing justice to the topic in a, in a couple of minutes like this. The second fitna, uh, 680 to 692, is, is usually less well-known outside of, of specialists, um, but is immensely important in terms of the construction of identities in early Islam. It starts with the um, assassination of the martyrdom of Al-Hussein, the son of Ali, a grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, at the Battle of Karbala on the bank of the Euphrates River. And Hussein is killed at the, end, at the hands of Umayyad forces. Um, today, obviously, it's a major, major site of memory for Muslims, and not only for Shiites, even though first and foremost for Shiites, but for Muslims more broadly. Uh, and it's still being mourned and commemorated every single year uh, during um, Ashura. Um, but that, in a way, if you adopt an Umayyad perspective, is perhaps less significant. Yes, it's very problematic that Umayyad forces have killed the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, and they try to bury this, in a way, and, and not to publicize it too much. But in, in military terms, this was a fairly minor operation um, and, and a fairly easy success for Umayyad forces. And the real threat, the one that will really imperil the Umayyad Caliphate for about 12 years, comes from Mecca and from someone named Ibn al-Zubayr. His father had been killed in the Battle of the Camel in 656 that I mentioned earlier. And Ibn al-Zubayr will try to create his own caliphate ruling from the Hijaz, from Mecca and Medina, over the empire. And several provinces, most of them, frankly, will end up uh, joining his side. And so the Umayyad, um, Umayyad territories are shrinking fast, limited to a fraction of, of Syria. But eventually, the Umayyads are able to recover uh, to besiege uh, Ibn al-Zubayr in Mecca in a in a very traumatic episode, they, they bombarded the Kaaba, the most sacred place for Muslims, and, and that plays a role in the kind of uh, negative image of the Umayyads in the Islamic tradition, of course. Um, and in 692, the Umayyad forces managed to kill uh, Ibn al-Zubayr 
in a way, ending the fitna. Now, the military dimension might be interesting, but maybe not the most interesting part here. What is interesting is that to assert his legitimacy, Ibn al-Zubayr increasingly put the emphasis on the Prophet Muhammad. And that's when we see the first coins minted by Zubayrid governors in Iran bearing the name of the Prophet Muhammad. And so the Umayyads are kind of following suit, and they are also starting to mint coinage, insisting on the significance of the Prophet. So in a way, we can, we can elaborate if you want, but in a way, the second fitna is fascinating because that's a, a kind of an inflection point in the making of a discrete Muslim identity. It culminates in 692, not just with the Umayyad military victory, but with the erection of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, often regarded as the first discrete Muslim building. And I want to go to coinage as well, and I, I had that as a topic point, so I want to go back to that, and it sounds like a very important date is 692. In the last two responses, what you, what, what you brought up was religion. Can you expand on what the Umayyads' religious orientation was intrinsically as far as you feel that you can share what, what you know or, or believe it was intrinsically, but also administratively in the state? Right. Um, so religion is, a, is not an easy concept here, and, and we will basically need a separate conversation on how applicable the concept of religion is for, for early Islam and medieval Islam. Some scholars, such as my colleague uh, Ahmed Karamustafa, have written about this. And um, if you think about the Arabic language, there is no easy translation here. Maybe the most common term will be deen in Arabic, but that doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit difficult to reduce the term to religion uh, the way we normally understand it. But that being said, the challenge we're facing is that the Umayyads are remembered quite in a dark light in later sources. In particular, they are often accused or blamed for not being very religious, for being bad Muslims, if you will. And that's kind of paradoxical for historians and archaeologists or art historians of the Umayyad period, because that's really not what you see in, in the um, architectural or artistic record. What you see is, to the contrary, considerable efforts made by the uh, Umayyad rulers to articulate what we would now regard as a discrete Islamic identity to erect mosques in every single major city of the empire to articulate a, a, a visual identity that is distinctively Islamic, including uh, the very birth of what we would call, again, I'm using quotation mark, uh, Islamic art. So there is this tension here that is really interesting. And I think what recent scholarship on the second fitna has shown, um, I'm thinking of the work of Fred Donner in particular, but you know others as well, is that the second fitna is a key moment of redefinition of identity. It's a key moment that is partly prompted by this competition between Zubayrids, Ibn al-Zubayr's partisans, and Umayyads, with this new emphasis on the prophet. We could think about coins, we could think about inscriptions as well. Um, you see that the early inscriptions of the Shahada, the Islamic profession of faith, um, so now today, the Shahada is made of two parts, and we take it for granted. 
The first part says there is no God but Allah. So it proclaims the oneness, the uniqueness of God. So kind of a hardcore monotheism. And the second part claims that Muhammad is a messenger of Allah. or Muhammad is a messenger of God. But in the early inscriptions, the second part is absent. So the early Shahada, this has been shown, for instance, by French scholar uh, Frédéric Humbert, the early Shahada seems to only focus on um, the oneness, the uniqueness of God. And it's only from the second fitna onwards that we see appearing this emphasis on Muhammad as a prophet. And that has prompted someone like Fred Donner to suggest that the early community might have been much more inclusive, a community of believers, to use Donner's terminology, well, firmly grounded in the sources, uh, but as opposed, if you will, as a more restrictive community of Muslims, where you also have to acknowledge Muhammad's prophetic status. Um, so that, you know, that has been an extremely dynamic um, topic in the field to question the making of identities in early Islam. I should add, um, thinking about the work of Peter Webb, that it's not just a question of a Muslim identity that has been debated, but also the question of an Arab identity. And it seems that in both cases, the Umayyads are absolutely central to the definition of what became an Islamic and an Arab, uh, uh, Islamic and Arab identity. Let's go back to the coinage. Now, the, the topic of, of coinage. Now, what materials were they using to produce the coinage? And were they ever inscribing various caliphs on the coins? Right. So at first, you, you have mostly a situation where Byzantine coins in former Byzantine territories and Sasanian coins in former Persian territories are being used, recycled in the um, um, you know, monetary economy of the, of the caliphate. Um, a first step will be to start adding some Arabic on top of the Greek or Middle Persian already inscribed on those coins. So at first, we're dealing with multilingual coins, bilingual coins. Um, and the iconography is, is very typically Byzantine or, or, or Sasanian. But you have to think about the Umayyads very much as an experimental dynasty. And eventually, they will experiment. They will try different options. And here again, uh, the 690s are absolutely central. Um, under the caliphate of Abd al-Malik, uh, 685 to 705, very, very important um, ruler of the Umayyad caliphate. Um, you see major efforts to um, create a distinctive uh, Islamic coinage. And you have various steps. Uh, one fascinating step uh, is what numismatists call the standing, standing caliph coins, where you see um, the figure of a, of a bearded, uh, long hair ruler Caliph, well, I'll, that's not even entirely clear who that person is. I'll, I can unpack that in a minute. But you have this standing Caliph, as it has usually been understood, with a sword um, and, um, and Arabic inscriptions around this, uh, the figure. That is a fairly short-lived experimentation, only a handful of years, before it is being replaced by 
purely epigraphic, purely epigraphic coinage with inscriptions, Arabic and Quranic inscriptions only. Now we're talking about gold coins, we're talking about silver coins, we're talking about copper coins, that will all be a bit different. Um, there's a lot of scholarship uh, on this, and it's a bit difficult to do it here without visuals. Um, but since I hinted to this, so we've long assumed that the sending figure on the so-called sending caliph coins was Abdel Malik himself, and that has been questioned by some scholars recently, or over the last um, decade or a couple of decades. The problem is that Abdel Malik is not mentioned on those coins. The only person mentioned on some of them, at least, is the Prophet Muhammad himself. And so some scholars noticed, uh, Clive Foss in particular, that this will be very unusual because we have no example. We have no examples of coins mentioning one person but representing another. So then the tantalizing question is, is Muhammad himself represented on those coins? Um, that raises formidable questions, but one argument that was adduced to support this view is that at the same time, the Byzantines are also reforming their coinage and putting the emphasis on, on Jesus, on their coins. So perhaps we can imagine that well, because of the second fitna and the competition between Zubairids and Umayyads, there was a new emphasis on Muhammad. So that would make a logic, logical choice for the prophet to appear on coins. And second, the discourse was also aimed at Byzantines who were um, insisting on the significance of Jesus in, on their own coinage. And so it's interesting because now coinage can be read as, you know, an internal discourse between Umayyads and Zubairids, but also responding to a new Byzantine challenge, uh, 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 and coinage is a, is a wonderful medium to do that. So there's no clear or confirmed evidence that any of the caliphs in this period had their own names inscribed on the coins? So you, you, you have... Um, Usually, again, I'm taking a lot of oratory precautions because it's difficult to, to, to make a definitive comment like this uh, uh, without unpacking so many potentially problematic examples. The most common scenario is that the coin will be dated and uh, you, will be, uh, you will see on the coin when it was struck and, and when it was struck and under the authority of what governor, uh, from which you derive the, the caliph was ruling at, the point, at that time. Um, by contrast, if you look at inscriptions, um, both monumental inscriptions and graffiti, um, you have ample evidence of the Umayyad princes and Umayyad caliphs mentioned uh, on those inscriptions in a, in a very broad variety of places. Um, so here we have uh, maybe a, a somewhat different um, strategies being used. Um, what is fascinating, though, is that our corpus of inscription has been really growing and, and growing really fast in some regions, especially in the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, to limit my comments to the Umayyads, Umayyad princes and Umayyad caliphs are really uh, being cited, mentioned quite a bit uh, in in, um, in those inscriptions. You can think of monumental inscriptions, as I was saying, uh, like um, at the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem or the Umayyad Mosque of Damascus, where inscriptions 
mention the name of the caliphs who, who were the patrons of those sites. You can think of a variety of other Umayyad uh, constructions uh, ranging from bathhouses to uh, palaces to new urban settlements where we have inscriptions. Some of them are no longer extant, but are documented through um, literary sources. Um, and uh, what we see now, um, though a lot more scholarship is needed on this, what we see now are um, quite a few important discoveries in the Arabian Peninsula of graffiti mentioning Umayyad princes and even possibly Umayyad caliphs. Um, it's unclear whether those graffiti, in most cases, it looks like those graffiti were carved before those princes accessed the caliphate because those graffiti are, are you know, do not um, uh, provide uh, caliphal titles or the like, just names. But um, that means that Umayyad princes are, are popping up increasingly uh, on stones. Um, and then you have other things that you could consider. For instance, we have quite a few um, milestones in Syria um, bearing the name of Abdel Malik uh, in particular, showing Umayyad efforts at developing or restoring the road system. You could think of other examples like this. In regions in the Mediterranean basin that at some point in time had, or in this period of time, may have still had indigenous languages that were popular, how, what was the caliphate's relationship to spoken language and written language from a from an administrative or a state perspective. So if it's in a if it's in a territory, let's say it's in northern Africa, for instance, and Amazirk is still a common language that's that's spoken, what's known about what kind of communications the the state provided? Were they always providing that communications in when it came to administrative type matters in Arabic, or is there evidence of uh, something different than that? Well, that's a great question. The standard narrative has been that the Umayyads were largely responsible for the Arabization of the empire, that they were responsible for shifting the administration into Arabic only, um, that they were responsible for, as we saw, uh, gradually replacing bilingual coins by Arabic-only coins. Now, this narrative is being challenged as we speak, and we need to really think about the Umayyad Empire as a multilingual empire. Um, Muawiyah that we were discussing at the beginning is a good example. Muawiyah had no problem uh, declaring himself a caliph in Greek, in Palestine, um, in Arabic, in the Arabian Peninsula, or in Middle Persian, in uh, what is modern-day Iran. So Muawiyah, you can see very clearly that he's adapting the language to the local audience and certainly using um, the, the prestige, uh, prestige language that was dominant in whatever region. The, again, the standard narrative was that Abdel Malik was responsible for changing this. But this is now being questioned because we see, for instance, in Egypt, where we have a lot more evidence, thanks to papyri documents, 
we've, we see that the Umayyad Chancery continued to produce multilingual documents in Arabic, Greek, and Coptic, Coptic becoming a very significant administrative language under the Umayyads, a status not enjoyed by Coptic before. Um, and so you see the Umayyad Chancery continuing to operate in two or three languages for the entire Umayyad period. So the notion of a, a radical shift to Arabic around 700 is, is being questioned. Uh, now as we speak, um, we, we have a, an edited volume forthcoming that um, Alison Vaca, um, Manuel Aceballos, and myself are uh, preparing entitled Navigating Language in Early Islam, or Navigating Language in the Early Islamic World, that precisely has a lot of contributions trying to document this multilingualism. Of course, this multilingualism is not restricted to the Mediterranean. And if you look at, say, Central Asia, you observe similar phenomena where Central Asiatic languages, Sogdian, Bactrian, Tokarian, I could go on, um, were also remaining significant uh, uh, and uh, uh, widely used in Umayyad times. So um, again, the, the notion of a, of a straightforward uh, Arabization process uh, needs to be uh, questioned here, and multilingualism needs to be restored. Uh, th that makes good sense if you think about the broader picture of, of late antiquity, because scholars of late antiquity have made much uh, about uh, multilingualism over the last few decades. It has become a major, major topic uh, of late antique studies, and it's sometimes a bit surprising that, as far as early Islam is concerned, we've still been operating way too much under the notion that um, you know Arabic was was enough. Uh, certainly not. And as you pointed out, on top of administrative practices uh, that were multilingual, you will need to add many more, many more languages uh, uh, on the ground to uh, imagine uh, how um, you know communication where where um, uh, how communication was operating on the ground. Yeah, a general thought that I've had, because I know in, we're talking about a lot of territory, and there would have been indigenous, various lang languages. So how, how, how the government would have approached that from a communications perspective. You had mentioned them building a navy. So I want to, and I said I would circle back to, to mar maritime. So when was the Navy built, either known or cir Circa? And what do you think their motivations were in building a Navy? Right. So um, there has been quite a bit of, of discussion about this. Uh, and there is a wonderful book by my uh, doctor father, uh, Christophe Picard, uh, now available in English, uh, The Sea of the Caliphs. Um, that will be uh, well worth reading for, for the audience uh, interested in that topic. First thing is, in the Quran itself, uh, there is no hostility against uh, navigation and, in fact, um, against um, you know, Muslim navigation. In fact, it's rather than uh, the Quran suggests that God has made uh, the sea um, fully available for Muslims, if I may, uh, at the risk of oversimplifying. Um, in the narrative sources, again, with the caveat that a lot of those texts were composed long after the Umayyads of Syria had been toppled, in the narrative sources, you have some, of, some kind of a tension um, pre-Umayyad under the so-called Rashidun with the Caliph Omar um, that was allegedly reluctant at first to um, 
start building a navy and start challenging the Byzantines on the Mediterranean. Um, the problem then, if you think logistically, the problem was that the Muslims were, or the Islamic expansion in uh, greater Syria uh, or Egypt, for instance, you would conquer the seashore, but then Byzantium will be able to, because they had the monopoly on the sea, they were able to bring reinforcements and uh, food to besiege cities, making uh, your job as a conqueror a lot harder. So the argument was allegedly made by some of the conquerors, and especially Muawiyah, um, uh, asking for the authorization to form a navy and start fighting at sea. Um, and so there is some kind of attention in the sources here about when this was um, um, kind of envisioned as a, as a realistic option. Long story short, it seems that um, once they uh, started building a navy, um, even before the um, Umayyad uh, Caliphate, right before the rise of the Umayyads, and, and, and then um, during the Umayyad century, um, this Muslim navy, embryonic Muslim navy, rose rapidly uh, to become a substantial one. Um, it is possible that in regions where experienced sailors were absent, that then um, the Umayyads forcefully moved uh, sailors from other regions. We have mentions of Persian sailors being moved to Syria. We know that Copts in particular in Egypt were forced to um, enroll in the uh, new navy. Um, but eventually um, it seems that the um, uh, Muslim navy experienced early victories against the Byzantines um, and then gradually uh, took over the Eastern, the Eastern Mediterranean including capturing Cyprus uh, and, and, further, uh, and, uh, and other Mediterranean islands. And you know, a, a first culmination of that uh, rise of the uh, Muslim navy was the first siege of Constantinople by, by Muawiyah. Um, and then that will continue, as we've mentioned, with, with further attempts against the Byzantine capital in the eighth century. And was the navy built in the seventh century? Was it in this period? Yes. Um, what we see in the sources are mentions of significant efforts to develop arsenals to build for shipbuilding in Egypt and, and Syria. Um, again, we're not talking about dedicated warships like we think now when we think about a navy. We're talking about multi-purpose uh, vessels that could, you know, um, be used for trade or uh, at war. But yes, we absolutely have a seventh century a significant effort to build a Muslim navy. And I'm just limiting my comments here to the Mediterranean, but we should of course talk about um, uh, other maritime spaces. My closing question is going to be, and I'll tell you this now, and, and it'll make sense why in a moment, it's going to be if there's two or three architectural milestones, certain accomplishments that the Umayyads had from, from a architectural perspective in, in, in building um, buildings as an, exam as an example uh, in this period that we're speaking about. But before we go there is, there, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanna make sure Antoine gets in this episode or something we did cover that you want to emphasize 
And if you and feel free if you want to go right to the architectural um, re response, that that's fine as well. All right. Well, I guess since we've been focusing on the seventh century, second half of the seventh century, the first half of the Umayyad Caliphate, we're really talking about formidable processes of state formation and empire building, and um, it's it's really, um, you know, uh, we we are talking about considerable, considerable achievements and extremely long-lasting achievements. We mentioned coinage. I mean, the kind of coinage developed by the Umayyad will remain the standard for centuries to come. Um, so, you know, we, we briefly mentioned art and architecture, and I'll elaborate in a minute. Um, that too, we have formidable, formidable Umayyad legacies, but we could also add other things we didn't cover, uh, ranging form. Um, so we spoke about the making of a Muslim identity. We could talk about the codification of rituals um, from the pilgrimage to prior um, and more, where the Umayyads were also key players. And, and part of the challenge, I mean, we will need another discussion to um, kind of elucidate the, the tension between uh, the tension in the source material, because so much of what we think we know about the Umayyads is mediated by Abbasid era scholars who kind of have their own agendas and their own claims um, to make. So it's it's really interesting to think about the Umayyads kind of torn between memory and oblivion uh, in the process of multiple layers of writings and rewritings of, of history. Um, architecture, that, that's a great point. Um, you know, if anyone traveling to the Middle East um, will run inevitably into some Umayyad architecture, the this is perhaps the single most obvious and significant Umayyad legacy. We mentioned already some significant buildings like the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem or the Umayyad Mosque of Damascus. But then again, the Umayyad Mosque of Damascus is just one example, but the Umayyads were responsible for erecting mosques in pretty much every single major city of the empire. Many listeners may have seen um, shocking images of the Umayyad Mosque of Aleppo being damaged during the uh, ongoing conflict in Syria. Um, but beyond the Dome of the Rock, beyond Umayyad mosques, there is so much more to think about. Uh, perhaps um, one obvious um, legacy to mention are the so-called Umayyad desert palaces. We know about 40 of them in Syria alone, and we're talking about very large um, structures dotting the Syrian steppe um, and we're talking about palaces, bathhouses, um, often lavishly decorated. Um, we didn't have a chance to mention the uh, Umayyad bathhouse of Qusay Amra in modern-day Jordan, uh, where you know entirely the walls, the inner walls, are entirely covered with frescoes that are fascinating because they give us a sense of how the Umayyads wanted to represent themselves, how. Uh, you know, unmediated, unfiltered by Abbasid era narratives. And what we see are the Umayyads being depicted as world conquerors. And we get a glimpse, we get a sense of the Umayyad worldview. Um, we could think of other places like Khirbat um, al-Mafjar near uh, Jericho, which has one of the largest mosaic floors in the world. Um, I think we're talking uh, about slightly more than 800 square meters. Uh, uh, about, I think, six million mosaics, which is, you know, it's it's absolutely mind-blowing. It's it's 
it says something also about the kind of formidable resources that the Umayyads had access to as world conquerors. Uh, and in fact, some sources blame or explain rather the Umayyad collapse by the fact that they were kind of running out of money as the conquests were slowing down toward the middle of the eighth century. But so all that to say that in terms of uh, Umayyad art, Umayyad architecture, um, the, the legacy is incredibly impressive. And again, with, with long lasting um, um, influence on Islamic art and architecture. Okay. It was good chatting with you today, Antoine. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Andrew. So the couple books, everybody, that I mentioned at the start of the episode, Dr. Barut is author of Between Memory and Power, the Syrian Space Under the Latter Umayyads and Early Abbasids, and co-editor of Umayyad Legacies, Medieval Memories from Syria to Spain. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Antoine and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.